I'd like to welcome you out to a special edition of the Lodestone Training and Consulting Podcast. I'm Jared Ross, and today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be remembering 9-11. Uh, 9-11 has shaped our entire lives for the past 20 years, and because of it, I made some major life decisions. Chris made some major life decisions. Our wives made some, some major life decisions, and, and everything has really changed since then. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with Chris and then myself and, and, and then Abigail. And we're going to talk about how 9-11 has affected us, what it has meant to us, and just share with you some of our thoughts and feelings as, as we as a nation think and reflect on the events 20 years ago and, and how it has shaped our life. So, Chris, um, turn the time to you, man. Okay. Um I think the best way to start off is just to give that small bit of background of, you know, everyone remembers where they were, what was going on. Um, I had been in the Army for, mm, had to have been about 18 months, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit less. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> um, Old man. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that I can't remember. Uh, been hit in the head a few times. Uh, so I had joined the army in 2000. Um, the initial idea was like a lot of people, I need a change. I was 22 years old. I didn't have any real career path or anything. So I thought that was a, a great way to make that change. So I joined for four years. I'd be out when I was 26, uh, still young enough to, you know, go to college and, get into that career field, whatever it is that I wanted and, or was good at and start living my life. Um, Pam and I were married. We got married in 2001 in January of 2001. So we've been married for nine months. Uh, we did not have any children at the time. Uh, we were just starting to get into a groove as a married couple as, you know, we we're past the newlywed, you know, uncomfortable, awkward stages, um, we had some interesting times when we were first married. I was a young uh, soldier. I was in E2. We didn't get our base housing, our basic housing allowance for like six months. So we were struggling. Uh, and that, you know, that kicked in uh, right at the beginning of the summer. Um, things were starting to go really well for us. Uh, you know, we are starting to actually achieve something as a couple. We were talking about having children, um, and life was pretty good. I had just been uh, promoted to be a specialist. I was an E4. That was very exciting. That's a the, any of you that have been in the military know that that E4 rank is man. That's coveted. You're no longer a private, but you're not an NCO. It's that sweet spot. Uh, uh, we had just finished up a huge field exercise that had just had so many problems. Uh, we were out at Camp McCall uh, on Ryan Lazan uh, drop zone. Uh, we were practicing airfield seizure. I was in the 82nd Airborne at the time, 3rd of the 325 Blue Falcons. And um, they had a helicopter crash. Someone thought that they could land a C-17 on that dirt strip out there. And they landed it, they landed it heavy. It had armor uh, vehicles on it. 
And uh, I, to this day, I don't know how they got that plane off of it because it went past the drop zone or went past the FLS, the flight landing strip. Um, it buried the front landing gear into the dirt. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it was, there was, there was so much stuff that went wrong on this field problem that they just finally stopped us and had us like come together in our company elements and just sit there. <laughs> don't do anything. Don't pull security. We're not doing it. Just sit there. Um, and then, you know, the exercise, once all that got all taken care of, we moved off uh, and set up and did our whole, you know, airfield seizure procedures and all of that and went into all the fun stuff. So that was the the first week of September. Uh, we got out of the field and we were uh, tasked to go clean up the the battalion's uh, drash, which is a giant collapsible tent. If you think about those those camp chairs you buy at Walmart that fold out, uh, the crazy you know leg system, the drash is kind of like that. You four guys pull on all the sides, and now you have a you know huge building. Well, not huge, but you have a big enough building you can have a um, operations center in. So we were tasked to clean this. We had to sweep it out and mop it, and it was filthy. It rained, and it was just real nasty. And uh, someone came out and told us, hey, um, someone flew a, a plane into one of the uh, the trade center, or the World Trade Center. And it was, we were, we were all joking, like, what kind of moron would do that? You know, we were all thinking some kind of Cessna. You know, we weren't by a TV. We were out in the middle of uh, DeGloppler Field uh, cleaning this tent. And, uh, you know, I was like, man, I, I bet the guy, like, had a heart attack or something. But he's like, how else would you have flown into a building? Like, you had to have already, like, been dead, you know? I mean, it had to have been this horrible accident. And uh, we still didn't know that it was actually a plane, like a real, like, commercial passenger liner and that so many people had been killed. Uh, we didn't know until the second uh, plane flew into the, the tower and um, our battalion S3 and I can't think of the major's name right now again I've been heading the head too many times I guess well it was 20 years it ago. was 20 years ago yeah um, he came out and uh, he was like okay this is what's going on two airliners have flown into the World Trade Center and uh, th that was what it, that was when we realized we were being attacked and no one really knew what was going on. Um, and I remember this major, he said, I bet you that it was Osama bin Laden. And this is, you know, showing my ignorance at the time, you know, I, I was 23 years old. Uh, I, I didn't remember who Osama bin Laden was. And I knew who he was from 93, uh, but even in 93, I was still in school. You know, I, I was a, a kid. I knew the name, but I didn't know the name. It, it didn't resonate as much. And now, you know, even my children, who were all born after 9-11, know who Osama bin Laden was. I mean, you, you say that name and everyone knows who that was. Uh, that's how significant this attack was. And, uh, yeah, that, that was quite the... Um, quite the experience to realize, wait a second, um, we're in the 82nd Airborne. We are about to take DRF-1. So that's Division Force 
uh, ready one. You are the guys that from the call, it's 18 hours, wheels up. You're flying anywhere in the world, ready to jump in and do what is, is necessary. So we start realizing, hey, that's us. That that could be like, you know, I think it was a week or two before we took uh, DRF-1. Um, so we were like doing all the cleaning and getting all the equipment ready. And um, at, that, at that point in my Army career, I've been in for about a, a year and a half. That was the first DRF-1 that we took really serious. Like we, we knew this, like everything better be serviceable. It's not a, a well, it could happen type thing. Um, so that, that was definitely a, a change for us. It was no longer finger drilling it. We were doing it for real. Um, one of the, the major things that happened on September 12th, uh, post closed down, um, they heightened security. You had to do at that point, you could drive on to Fort Bragg without, uh, showing your ID card. Um, you could just, there was no, you get on all American and drive right in, um, at, after, <clears throat> sorry, after, um, nine 11, that all changed. You had to show ID card. You had to have your, uh, your vehicle registered on post so that, uh, I lived off post with my wife, um, September 12th, I had the idea, you know what, I know that it's going to be traffic's going to be crazy getting on post. And, uh, I got a bike and I rode a bike on. And, um, I was one of the few guys that lived off post that made it, um, into the barracks before like noon. And it was just crazy. Yeah. I think that the majority of the NCOs, the majority of the officers all lived off post. So, there were a lot of people that didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of chaos. And, uh, like I said, we were, we knew we were getting ready to take uh, DRF one and we took it very serious. And it, where you would think normally with the lack of leadership, people would just been, you know, screwing around, hanging out in barracks rooms and, um, playing video games. Instead it was, it was the opposite. We were getting ready to go to war. Uh, and, almost to a man that was that was the mentality we have to be ready you know i, I wasn't in at that point <clears throat> but um talking to one of the guys in the, in the platoon i eventually uh was assigned to after I, I came in that's that's what he said too it's like on uh on the 12th he said everybody was you know eventually made it in everyone was in there and they were basically you know we usually we wait around for the word to, to leave everyone was like we know we're going to war yep. everyone was you know checking magazines mm-hmm. checking their kit checking their kit again <laughs> and just not knowing if and when that that call was going to come or where they were going to go and he also said that um everyone was quiet too that was the weird thing yes. usually everyone yes. de- oh. is together and you know you're bs and laughing and you know you know playing games and stuff but he said everyone was just quiet and just waiting we had been punched in the face and uh the way that we viewed ourselves we're the 82nd airborne we are the guys that are going to punch back and even though my unit assumed drf1 within two weeks we didn't we didn't deploy and uh i'll tell you that that was 
very bad for morale. Um, when we watched the 101st go in, I mean, it was, we're watching it on TV when we should have been there. And there was a lot of anger. Um, and, you know, the, the barracks rumors of, well, you know, we assumed DRF won, but someone failed. You know, one of the other battalions failed. Oh, it was the White Falcons or it was the Red Falcons. And I'm sure they were all over saying it was definitely the Blue Falcons. Um, we don't know. I, I still, do, to this day, don't know why we didn't get the call. Uh, while we were on that DRF1 cycle, we got the call many times um, to come in and, and muster. And, and every time that we got that call, you know, it's, I'm a young married man. I've been married less than a year. I'm kissing my wife goodbye to go jump into Afghanistan. You know, something's gone wrong and they need the 82nd Airborne. It didn't happen. Um, there was a lot of stress. It was really hard on our, uh, our young marriage. Um, we, we made it through. Um, Pam is a wonderful woman. She has endured a lot. So we ended up not going. Uh, the, I didn't go to Afghanistan until I was uh, Green Beret. I didn't go until uh, 2012, um, you know, quite a while later. Um, but that definitely changed the army that I was in. I was in a military that was, okay, you know, occasionally we'll have a unit that goes over to the Balkans um, or over to Africa or something, um, but no one really went anywhere. Um, we had just done, uh, in the early summer, we had done a paratrooper exchange where we went over to Germany and I got to spend about a month over there. And that was pretty cool. And I thought that's what the army was going to be. Um, after September 11th, it wasn't. It was, we are a fighting force. And a lot of, a lot of things changed. When we went to the field uh, to do training, it wasn't to qualify that we can do an airfield seizure. It was, we are practicing this so that we can go do this live that we can do this for real and it definitely changed my mindset um you know I, I mentioned earlier about that i didn't remember who osama bin laden was one of the biggest mindset changes that that happened after september 11th for me was i realized that i didn't know what was going on in the world i watched the news you know but didn't really process any of it and i honestly think that this was the seed that started me down the the journey to become an 18 fox i started doing my own research uh, reading books and articles and anything I could find. You know, this is early 2000s. It, the internet that we have now is not the internet that we had then. It was still a new thing. Um, not There wasn't a lot of, um, not the same kind of level of information out there. Uh, so I had, to, I had to seek it out. Very fortunate. Um, we had a really good battalion S2. So S2 is the uh, intel section. And he started putting information out and, you know, I started sucking it up and reading it and learning about the different things that were going on. And I don't think I'll ever be able to put my head back in the sand. I don't think I'll ever be able to be ignorant again like I was um, on September 10th. Um, now I, I have to know, uh, you know, what is going on in the world and have to form my own opinions about it. I think that's one of the big takeaways, 
me personally, and I think that is for a lot of people, uh, realizing one, you know, we're vulnerable, so we need to know what's out there. We need to know what's going on. Um, and you know, it, September 11th changed a lot of things for us. Uh, it opened the door for the global war on terrorism. Um, we started to recognize that there are threats out there. Um, the American people started to get behind, uh, you know, instead of just being defensive, let's become offensive. And um, that's where I got my first deployment. And um, in the global war on terrorism, I deployed for uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, deployed on uh, Valentine's Day, uh, 2003. Um, found myself sitting in Kuwait doing uh, pre-jump every other day. So uh, in order to do an airborne operation, you have to do a, a rehearsal of um, what you're going to do. It's called pre-jump, and it's good for 24 hours. And so every other day we were doing pre-jump. That way when the mission came down that, yep, we're going to jump, we were supposed to jump into a uh, Baghdad International Airport and uh, so we're studying it and doing all that and practicing and practicing and practicing and then we didn't jump and again all the rumors that flew around that you know the brigade commander said we weren't ready and all this and you know this this company failed and whatnot um, we ended up air landing in um, Talil um, to guard the um, supply lines for third id who was doing their blitzkrieg up to baghdad because they weren't securing anything on their way and they were getting uh you know their their front line was you know taking anything that they were seeing but um everything coming up behind them was getting hit pretty hard so they decided to push us in there up to that point um the army had always just been i'm gonna do four years i'm just gonna do my time even after September 11th, um, you know, I wasn't in a hurry to get out of the army. I know there were other people that, you know, they only viewed the, the military as, um, you know, a paycheck. And a lot of people uh, dropped retirement packets and a lot of people that had been just kind of leeching on the system got out. It, it cleaned house. Um, I was going to finish my time. I was, you know, I'm going to do that. But I hadn't really had the the knowledge that I do now that this is who I am, this is what I'm supposed to do. Now, that slowly came over that first deployment. Um, it was July. I was in Baghdad, and uh, I realized I'm really good at this stuff, and uh, this is quite honestly uh, something I could see doing the rest of my life. And I see a, a purpose for me doing this the rest of my life. And I'm not alone in this. Uh, you, you guys got to remember that I'm, I'm a married man. At this point, uh, we had Evelyn, our oldest daughter. And, uh, you know, my wife is planning on me getting out of the military and going to college and, and having a nine to five job. Um, so communication was really poor. Uh, <laughs> on my first deployment, Pam went three months without receiving a letter, not because I wasn't writing them. The mail system was just that bad. 
uh, she got this whole big bundle of letters one day. Um, I wish that she was here and she could tell that story because it's kind of kind of good. Um, but so I got a hold of a phone where I could talk to her and uh, I said, okay, I have to make a choice. And that means we have to make a choice. I either am home by Christmas and I ETS and that's, you know, separate from the army. Um, and we go on with the plan that we've been working on or I reenlist and uh, I don't know what to do. And my wife being more of a spiritual person than I am, she said, suggested that uh, we went ahead and prayed about and we fasted about it. And I'm in, this is July in Baghdad. And uh, I said, you know what? I, I think you're right. I went ahead and uh, fasted, went without food or water uh, and still continued. Um, and the Lord sustained me. So I was able to uh, continue uh, combat operations. I didn't tell anyone that I was doing this. And uh, by the end of that week, I knew that I needed to re-enlist. Not only did I need to re-enlist, but I needed to, um, I needed to go to selection and become a Green Beret. Uh, so I get a hold of a phone again. I call up Pam, and I said, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I don't know how to say this to you, but I've gotten my answer. I need to re-enlist. And uh, my wife, with tears in her eyes, and you could hear her voice crack, she says, you know what? I've gotten the same exact answer, but I have more. You need to go special forces. You need to become a Green Beret. That was the part I didn't know how I was going to tell my wife. It was hard enough that I had to tell her that I was going to re-enlist, and you know, then she tells me, no, no, you need to, you need to become a Green Beret. The sacrifice that that woman made uh, with that statement. I don't, I don't know if she fully understood, um, what she was volunteering for at that time, uh, with the, the way that the, the GWAT was going, the global war on terrorism. Um, we ended up in our, we've been married for 20 years now in that time, we spent almost six years apart between deployments and training, um, schools that I had to go to, uh, but she willingly accepted that burden because she recognized on September 11th that freedom isn't free, that someone has to go out there and defend it. And she saw that I had the, that calling that I had that job. She recognized it and she supported me through all these years. So September 11th definitely changed us. Um, and I'll tell you that my wife was even more of a mushroom than I was. Uh, she liked to be in the dark. Uh, but after September 11th, she woke up and she started learning things and learning what's going on in, in the world politics. I think that's the way it was for a lot of us. Um, I think that we have a duty not to let uh, it be forgotten. We have a duty that we let those in power and those that we interact with know that we are not uh, safe, that we are vulnerable, there are things that can happen, um, and that we have a responsibility to be prepared uh, when those things happen, that we can react. We don't want to be caught with our guard down. So, yeah, uh, significant impact on my life. Um, it has impacted my family. Um, 
It has changed who I am as a human being, I think, for the better. Um, I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and it is something that is not forgotten. Um, I make sure that my children understand what happened that day. I think there is a great value in sharing it with the the next generations so that they understand um, these powerful defining moments. We can't, we can't let them slip by. So that is, uh, that is my experience. Um, I thank all of you for uh, giving me your ear and letting me uh, share the story with you. Thank you, Chris, for, for sharing your thoughts and your feelings. And uh, Abby, now uh, turn time over to you. Okay, so um, a lot of you already know that I grew up on Staten Island in New York City. Um, growing up, I spent a lot of time, my parents would take us into the city to go to museums and parks and stuff. So um, I spent a good amount of time in Manhattan. Um, but then I actually went to high school um, in Manhattan in uh, the neighborhood of Tribeca, which is just a few blocks from where the Twin Towers stood. Um, so I was a freshman in high school in 1994 and I knew, um, there were kids, you know, a year or two older than me who had been there, um, when the, the bombings happened in 1993, when they drove the trucks down into the parking garage and, and exploded bombs in the parking garage under the twin towers in 1993, and they had been there at school and had heard and felt the concussion. So that's that's how close I was um, going to school. I wasn't there when that happened, but um, but that's how you know every day going to school. They you know it was right there. Um, so that that was um, it. There were it was a very familiar area to me. Um, I'd gone to the stores, you know, the, the, there's a big bookstore in the, the bottom of one of them. And so going to stores there, I remember going and walking through the plazas and the fountain that was there and uh, going with a group of friends, probably in 1998 or 1999, going, in, uh, going to a club and going swing dancing at the club at the very top of one of the towers. I don't remember which one it was, but there was a, a, a club. And so we went swing dancing up there. So, so I was very familiar with the area and, and it was, you know, that was part of my home. So by the time the September 11th happened, so September of 2001, uh, I was, I had moved with my parents to Pennsylvania. I was working at a veterinary hospital. So with like dogs and cats, I was a veterinary assistant. And Jared and I had met and were engaged to get married. Um, and that morning I was working and I don't even remember what anybody said, but somebody turned on the TV that was mounted like on the ceiling in the break room. And we all stood around and watched as the second um, plane hit the, the towers. Uh, 
so as far as like my feelings at that point, I don't remember exactly how I was feeling, but that was still very much home to me. At this point, you know, we've lived several places and we've been in Pennsylvania for a long time, so Pennsylvania feels like home. But at that point, it was, I was watching something happen to my home and I was far away. Not that I could have done anything, but it it was made it a little harder that it was, I was so far away, I guess. Um, so, like I said, Jared and I were engaged to be married. We were married four days after 9-11 on September 15th. There was a lot of question about if we were still going to be able to get married because we were getting married at a temple, a church in Washington, D.C. And so we weren't even sure if we were going to be able to go and, and get married that day whether it was going to be closed or open because there had also been the, the plane hitting the Pentagon. Um, but we were able to. And in our very new marriage, there was a decision that already came up that we needed to make. Um, Jared had previously looked into the military and not ever felt it was the right time and felt at that time that it was his his time and it was his duty to uh, join the military and we prayed about it together and we made the decision together and uh, made that decision for, for him to go and join the army so he went into the army in February of 2002 so not long after as far as the impact that 9-11 has had on my life, I think it's had a huge impact because of that decision that we made in response to that event. You know, we're coming up on the 20 years since 9-11. We're coming up on Jared's and my 20th wedding anniversary. Um, And I was fairly young when we got married. I was uh, just turned 21, so really my entire adult life, I feel, has been shaped by the events and the s- decisions that we've made in response to those events that have happened since 9-11. Um, we made that decision to go into the military, um, and I mean, that's a whole lifestyle uh, we dealt with him being deployed multiple times. We've dealt with uh, separation for training. He was in Afghanistan when our first two children were born. We have twins and he was in Afghanistan. So dealing with giving birth without him there and then him dealing with not being there and not being able to be there for their birth. Um, But I think that all of those things really have shaped who I am because the things that have been hard in my life have just made me 
a stronger and more capable person. So it's hard to imagine what my life would have been if that had not happened. You know, who knows, you know, Jared may never join the military or maybe he would have and it would have been through peacetime. I mean, who who knows? But so much of my adult life really has the implications and the echoes of that event stamped on it. Well, well, thank you. What does 9-11 mean to me? That's such a a huge question. Um, Obviously, it's impacted my life. It's impacted all of our lives for the the past 20 years. Um, I have met a lot of good friends, and I've had some good comrades who have, have died Um, through the conflict and through stuff, through, you know, through everything that's been going on. Uh, So it certainly has shaped who I am. And I've been thinking and pondering about, you know, freedom and liberty and and what life was like prior to 9-11. And there was so much more more freedom. And, you know, I'm thinking about some of the, the dumb things I did as a kid that were mischievous, but, you know, and but at the same time, innocent that you know, now in the world that we live in post 9-11, uh, you know, my, my kids could never do some of the shenanigans that I did and then and get away with it, with it not you know, severely affecting their life. Just simple things. I went to school and uh, our, um, our mascot was, uh, was the Pioneer. And when I was a kid, it was uh, the, the Pioneer, Martin Myland, who was actually uh, um, one of the guys who made the... the the Pennsylvania rifle, one of the first ones, it was a, the mascot was, was him holding a Pennsylvania rifle. And uh, now in the world that we live in, uh, that same mascot is no longer holding a, a rifle. I think he's holding a plow or he might be holding like a hoe or, or, or something like that. Just ridiculous. Uh, some of the changes and stuff that have come. Uh, but I remember loved ones or people who coming to visit prior to 9-11, flying in and how we could do something simple as walk all the way down to the gate and, and, and see them as they exited the airplane and then, you know, greet them there. Um, so all that security stuff, we, so many people now have no recollection or don't even remember what it's like prior to all that security, prior to, to you know, grandma getting strip, um, strip searched or, or all some of the, all the other, you know, shenanigans and, and stuff that that go on now all in the name of security. So it's a completely different world. But um, to give you guys a little bit about my thoughts and my feelings and, and my experience, um, like Abby said, we were getting ready to to get married. And um, I was working at, at UPS, as I've shared before. I was a uh, pre-sort supervisor um, there and st- just really getting my foot in the door and starting to enjoy it and seeing that it was a good company to work for. And, you know, maybe that I would have turned that into my career. And I remember that Tuesday morning, I'm talking to one of my best friends who was in the Air Force. um, And we were talking about uh, actually when his flight was going to arrive because he was looking forward to coming into, uh, you know, to the wedding. And then as we were talking, I think he was the first one to notice something. Um, he, television must have been on where he was at. And he's like, hey, uh, uh, I'm going to let you go real quick. It looks like an airplane just crashed into uh, into a building in, in New York. 
So um, he quick it off, and I flipped on the news, and they were showing pictures of of the first plane that had hit one of the twin towers, and that was very stunning to me. Um, I, as it was to most people, I just kind of dumbfounded. How could that person, you know, what, what do they have a heart attack? Did something go wrong? You know, how how could that have happened? And then he called me back, and I'm talking to him on the phone, and um, both of us were like, "Wow, this is this is pretty crazy." And as we were talking on the phone, that's when the second plane hit. And as soon as it hit, his response was, this is an attack. We're at war. I'm, I don't think I can come to your, your wedding now. Um, and, and he couldn't. He, you know, for a couple different reasons. One, no one was flying anymore after that. But two, he immediately uh, started doing his, his day job and, uh, and prepping. Um, so as he realized that, and I realized too, yeah, that this is an attack. Um, I know Abby had shared with you just a few minutes ago how I uh, had looked into the military, and I did. I, I um, as a younger man, I looked pretty heavily into the military, and as I made it a matter of prayer, I just, even though I felt like going in and doing something. Um, the response or the answer or the uh, the prompting that I received as I made it a matter of prayer was, no, uh, don't go, um, at least not now. So I was doing everything else in my power to, um, you know, to better myself. I was working multiple jobs. I'd done some college. I was going to probably do some more college. Like I said, I was working for UPS. And then um, this went on for a couple of years, and I that's when I stumbled upon uh, Abigail, and we very quickly went from like, hey, who are you to, hey, uh, we kind of, I kind of like you to we're going to get married. And, um, you know, maybe I had I gone into the military before I was supposed to, maybe I never would have met her. And what a tragedy, what a crime that would have been, at least for me. I don't know about for her, but for me, that would have been horrid to, uh, to not find her and to not get married to her. So as that second plane hit um that same sweet feeling that same prompting from god that before told me definitely no uh don't go now is telling me yes now now's the time now you need to go um and i was an old man i was i was 27 at the time Mm -hmm. so i was you know had already been past my my prime that's what I thought what my prime was in, in going in and uh I knew then that oh I I, I need to go um so as my wife uh described we were able to get married that that Saturday and um since it was September leading into Thanksgiving and leading into, into Christmas um I wasn't going to leave my my job at the peak season. Uh, I just wasn't going to do that to them. So I immediately, uh, after Abby and I had prayed and we had come to the conclusion, yes, I need to, I need to enlist. I went and started talking to the recruiter, and um, decided I would go in, in in February instead of going in immediately. And honestly, with as many people as who were enlisting at the time, February was probably the earliest they could have got me in, anyways. So I uh, did the honorable thing, finished uh, the peak season uh, with UPS. And when I told my boss what I was going to do, 
honestly, I don't know if it was, uh, you know, because they had to and it was law or, or not. But when I told him that, hey, this is what I want to do, he looked him in the eye and said, good for you. You go do that and I will hold your job for four years. And at the conclusion of four years, if you want to stay in or you want to keep doing that, definitely do it. But if you decided that you've, you've served your country and you've done everything you need to and you don't want to do that anymore, your job is here waiting for you. And uh, that, was, that was pretty cool. Um, I did not expect that. And I was very thankful for, you know, for that gesture. Um, so I, uh, I went in. I, I went to basic training. And my basic training experience was, was interesting. Um, thank goodness that uh, me and my buddy, the same guy who was in the Air Force that I was talking to, we were talking to each other when, when the uh, planes hit. Uh, one of the things we did growing up is we used to watch the first half of Full Metal Jacket every other week at least. So I went in with the expectation that I was going to get Gunnery Sergeant, uh, uh, oh gosh, can you think what uh, Army's name, his name is in there? Hartman, yeah. Uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. I was expecting that. So when I didn't get that the first day and I survived the first day and I was still alive, I realized, oh, okay, I can do this. This, this, is, this is passable. I, I, I'm not going to die. And, um, you know, I, I went to, to Sand Hill there, Benning went through infantry and uh, eventually did airborne school and, and went to the 82nd Airborne, the second, the 504. As I was going through uh, through the MEPS and through the in, in processing thing, after I did all my tests and my test results came back, uh, my recruiter was like, are you sure you want to go infantry? I'm like, heck yeah. He's like, are you sure? Because with your test scores, you can do anything you want in the Army. And in my mind, probably, you know, from reading... Uh, Starship Troopers and, and other influences when I was a, a kid, um, I realized there's really only two jobs in the Army, the guy in the ditch with the shovel and then the guy who hands him the shovel. And I wanted to be the guy who was actually doing the work. So I said, yeah, I, I want to do, uh, do infantry. I want to do airborne air infantry. So then I went to, uh, went to the 82nd. Charlie Company, 2nd of the 504. And... Um, that was a fairly interesting experience. I think I showed up in August, and I was only there a couple of weeks, and we did a uh, combat jump into JRTC, so I experienced Fort Polk and all of its misery, and uh, came back, and basically we had a few weeks with ranges and, and some other stuff, and then we were wheels up the beginning of December of 2002 to, to Afghanistan. And um, I only experienced the uh, pre-war army for the reality just for a couple of weeks with starched uniforms and spit-polished boots and, and all of that uh, stuff. Pretty much my entire experience was, you know, December 2002, deploying to Afghanistan was, was the wartime army. Um, You know, I've shared a lot about different experiences I had in Afghanistan, my first gunfight or firefight, which, you know, wasn't much of one, um, and, and some other stuff. Um, but one of the, the big things for me was just I was glad I was there doing the job, but how much I missed my wife. Um, you compare that first deployment where once a week— 
I could call home on a satellite phone for about 15 minutes um, compared to the last trip I took. That was, what, four years ago now? Yeah, about four years ago. About four years ago is the last the trip I took. Or shoot, we were FaceTiming just about every day. At least once a day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Our, our little girls, they're, they're spoiled. They have no idea <laughs> well, what it's like. Um, I remember um, being in Afghanistan in 2003, and it was weeks after the birth of my twins where we got to do our one and only video conference. And uh, I got to see my twin boys. And what was really cool is uh, my second oldest son, um, he told me once when he was like five years old, he uh, just kind of out of the blue, he's like, Daddy, I remember the first time I saw you. We were at a hospital. And they weren't at a hospital, but he that's... That's that's that, what he... Yeah, that's the impression that, that he had. It's like, and and you were on the TV, and you were way far, far, far away. So my, my son, at least one of them, as young as he was, how old were they, three months? No, 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 no. You came home when they were two and a half months old. Okay. For that video call, I think they were nine or ten days old. Really? That was it? Yeah. Uh, and that was, well, he, he remembered that. I must have made it, you know... Uh, this they, big man made a big impression on him, I guess. They were small enough that we were, because we had to wait in line. My mom and I were there waiting in line, waiting in line, waiting in line. And uh, instead of trying to carry both car seats in, we put them both in one car seat <laughs> and sat the car seat up on the table so you could see them. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Cool. All those struggles and all that, that, that time um, and hardships, I... I don't know about you, babe, but I, I, I don't think I'd change a thing. We, uh, it's, it stank, but the sacrifice was worth it. And, and I think we're a lot better people. And, and I know you and I are more unified now because of the, those times of separation. Yeah, I think so. I know we figured it out once. Do you remember how many years of time, um, I, we've been separated? I don't, I don't remember. I remember at one point though, that was probably at least four to five years into our marriage when we did the math and we had been separated more than we had been together, lived together. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, like I said, I deployed to Afghanistan 2002 into 2003. Mm -hmm. And then, um, we were supposed to have at least a a year dwell time, but some other unit, I don't know who it was, they weren't ready to deploy to Iraq. So six months after we got back from Afghanistan, our unit right away, we deployed again, uh, to Iraq and in 2004 and uh you know between that and, and SF I want to say that we've been we we figured it out once and not too long ago well you know maybe a year or two ago and it was pushing five years yeah um, I would guess at least with yeah. with all the times away with training and, and out in the field and yep stuff, and yeah. all the deployments and and everything yeah that uh yeah and now we're doing the other extreme where we're working together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're together almost all the time running this business. Um, so I, I joined up because I felt it was uh, my time, my, uh, you know, it, it was my obligation as a citizen. Uh, we had been attacked and it was my obligation to to join 
and to serve. And, and really almost all of my time serving, whether it's been with the 82nd or with SF or, or even now in the SF Guard, it's been, I guess I have these romantic ideas of, of actually serving the country and, uh, and sustaining and supporting the Constitution. So much has changed in our culture in these past 20 years. Uh, even in the culture of the Army, so much has changed. So many things are, are different. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to, 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 to leaving and, and after I have my, my 20 years in. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about some of the people I've known and people who have sacrificed a lot, sacrificed parts of their body, sacrifice themselves emotionally um and then some some people i know who who gave the ultimate uh sacrifice there's this one guy that i think of he was a good man he's a good mentor uh when i was struggling at and part of the uh q course the sfq course he was one of my cadre master sergeant simmons and he was a, a good man. And uh, he gave me some good advice, some tough love, um, but just really, yeah, I could tell that he cared. And that really went a long way while I was struggling as, you know, as, as guys do um, at different parts of the Q course. And uh, I found out later, you know, he left and he went back to group. He went, we went to seventh group. I believe that's where he came from. And uh, he died in, in Iraq, and he was in an RG, which, for those of you who don't know, it's a big, giant uh, vehicle. You can fit, oh, I guess it depends on the model, but usually you fit like five to seven guys inside of one of them. Um, they've got a remote control that can control a 50 cal machine gun or, or, another, or another weapon system, um, the Crow system. And... Uh, his his RG rolled and fell into a um, a canal, so it started a flood, and of course guys all have these uh, seatbelts on, and uh, he drowned there. And what I was told is that he was out of his seatbelt, he was free and clear, but two of his guys, his men, uh, they weren't, so they found him in his body. Um, as his hand was wrapped around one of these seatbelts as he was struggling to uh, to free one of his guys. So, you know, he and, and his two men that were in the in the vehicle there that didn't get out, they, they all drowned there. And the reason why I share that is that kind of selfless sacrifice, that's what so many people, uh, that, that's, that's what to them serving in the military is, is all about, is that kind of love that they're doing everything they possibly can for the man or woman next to them um, while they're in the fight. And that's really what, I guess, 9-11 means to me, is it was that call. Um, you know, there's so much more that I can say about the post-9-11 world, things that are irritating, things that uh, you know, are loss and, and erosion of freedom. But I really want to focus on, on the positive and what it's done. Um, you, if you've been in a class with me, you might have heard me say this, because uh, I do say it occasionally, and I honestly believe it. 
one of the greatest lessons we can learn from the 9-11 attack is that with all the resources of the United States government and all of the good people, all the good first responders, those in the military, those in different government agencies, all the good people, um, with all the resources of the mighty United States, the only effective fighting force we raised that day were a bunch of normal civilians who were on an airplane. And that airplane was taken over by those terrorists. And once they realized what was happening, once they heard about the other two planes that smashed into the Twin Towers, once they realized that we are under attack, those normal people stood up, rallied together, supported each other, and then they took the fight to those terrorists. And as best as we understand and know, they uh, beat those terrorists and they retook over control of the cockpit as I guess the last one then decided to, uh, to uh, dive it into the ground um, here in Pennsylvania. And I want you to think about that and let that, that lesson burn deep into you. That really is what uh, real Americans are. We're freedom-loving. We care. We love. We value our liberty and constitution. And when called upon, normal people, average citizens, can make a difference. Those people did make a difference. And they sacrificed their lives making that difference. You know, I love this country. I love the Constitution. I love the principles upon which this nation was formed and founded. I've sworn an oath unto God to defend it. And, you know, now that my actual military time is winding down, I'm not going to change or give up that fight. I'm just now going to be able to focus my efforts in a different way, in a different ways. One is, is teaching and training, but also, um, two, getting more active uh, politically and, and in other, other areas. Um, so I will always be standing up for liberty, standing up for freedom. You know, there are a few more clever things I was thinking about saying, but uh, I think this is a good place to, to ramp up and end uh, this podcast. Um, thank you for, for listening. Uh, think about, you know, some of the things that we've shared personally. And remember how, yes, we were attacked on 9-11, but at 9-12... The day after, we were so unified as a people. And so many people with a desire to do good and help others. And that's what I encourage you to do. Keep, keep doing that. Remember 9-12. Thank you guys for, for listening to this special uh, episode of the Lodestone Training Consulting Podcast. And God bless the Republic. We'll talk to you again next time. They're all heroes in my eyes. They really are. 
they all pitched together and they did what they thought was the best thing to do at that time. And um, I feel that Todd played a great role in that because when he told the guys, are you ready? I assumed that they were waiting on his cue. Then they responded to him and he said, okay, let's roll. <laughs>